0: Welcome to Audio Gyan with Kedar Nimkar. A podcast that documents insightful
1: conversations with Indian designers, artists, musicians, writers, thinkers and creatives of all types. Catch us on iTunes or visit audiogyan.com for more Gyan sessions. Here's your host, Kedar Nimkar. Welcome back to the episode of Audio Gyan Case Studies where I have Dishna Mehta with us. We have been discussing about the kumbh mela how did it happen how did or what was the process of documenting it what was the reason why it was called as being in it and being of it Uh, so i would tell all the listeners to listen to that first and then come to this episode so welcome back uh, deshna thank you uh, once again for giving your time and uh, yeah so as i told what we discussed in the first half this particularly is mainly to understand uh, how did design play an important role in the overall scheme of things and uh, what were the challenges what were the learnings and stuff like that so yeah the first uh, half focus on kumamela itself and the process of making the deliverables now can you tell us uh, more about some of the content or in these deliverables and the design systems adopted like how was the because i I've, I've just seen i have not actually seen the book but i've seen the website where top view photos so more about that if you can tell us sure.
2: Uh, So to start with, in terms of a system, uh, when we came back with almost, you know, two terabytes worth of footage and over, I would say, a lack of photographs from five or six people shooting within the team, it was quite an overwhelm to come back with this sea of information and sea of images and sea of stories when we were told to do one book. We just said that how on earth is this going to be one book? But uh, we decided to kind of walk one step at a time and break down every conversation, absorb it, translate. First step was translation because our books were in English, were to be in English, and most of our conversations on field were in Hindi. So we worked with translators to kind of first get each interview individually translated in English, retaining with the hope of retaining the flavor of the conversation that there was and to do this we made sure that the one person who was present at the actual conversation from our team overlooked the process of translation Mm. so that they have a flavor of the mood and the you know the tone of voice that the conversation happened in and so that the translation retained that it was Mm. important. So after the translation was over, we had these 80 conversations, each ranging from something like even a three minute to something going up to, I think the longest one was two hours and 45 minutes. Wow! So (laughs) we had the whole range of conversations. So uh, like I mentioned, when we spoke earlier, we tagged all the interviews. The tags gave us the names of the books and the categories under which the books sort of can be classified or categorized. We also realized that everything that was on field was a and a because it was an interview, something like the conversation format we're having now. But as a reader, it might be quite boring for me to read eight volumes which are QA. Correct. Or even eight volumes that are like an essay. So we said that like we have different aspects of the Kumbh in the form of different books, we want different styles of writing in the book to cater to different readers. So like we have eight aspects we have eight styles of writing so each book has eight styles of writing mm. so if i'm somebody so typically each book begins with a poetry now uh here it's important for me to mention that everything in the book barring two things is content that comes directly from people so all the content is formed from the conversations we are only editing and collating and contextualizing it in different categories but we had one person who was in our team Who came in and absorbed the landscape like a complete, uh, how would I say, complete uh, stranger. stranger. Somebody was just inquisitive. And she wrote poetry. So she wasn't with us all the time in all the interviews. She was on her own also, you know, walking in the streets of the Mela and absorbing the wine. So that is one piece which is, if I may use the word authorial or poetic. That is one piece that came from a single voice which was observing the landscape. So every book has one poetry to start with. And there's another piece which we call a diary note. So that is the only team voice, us as a team. So every book has a diary note. Now this diary note is something as sketchy as a a scan of something we may have scribbled in our diaries. And that forms a part of the book. So these are only two aspects which are the sort of team aspects or our perceptions Mm. the rest of it is we've tried our best to not have our worldviews get into the way of the work because Mm. ultimately it's philosophy so you know I may believe something but somebody I may talk to completely doesn't believe it or speaks about the opposite Mm. but I as a editor have no right to let my belief walk in So we were conscious. Of course, there's no such thing as neutral because the questions you ask determine the answers that come in, in a way. Mm. But we were conscious of the fact that everything that is there in the book is from the voices and is solely of the voices and not interfering with our own, except poetry and diary note, which is completely our own. Mm. So I just mentioned eight styles of writing. So poetry is one, diary note is two. In between, we have something called uh, an essay introduction. Now, the essay is the biggest piece of writing in every book. And the essay weaves something to the account of 8 to 12 voices from the conversations to form that aspect. So if I give an example, the History Mythology Belief book, which is Volume 2, has an essay which has about four saints who have spoken about the myth of the Kum. They have explicitly, most articulately spoken about the myth of the Kum. So from their conversations, we've pulled that up. And formed the essay and it is weaved with a few quotes of different individuals who are referring to history of the Mm Kum. So that forms the whole essay for book volume two. Similarly, for any other volume, voices which speak about that aspect. So when I say voices, I mean people. Mm. So people who speak about that aspect dominantly, we extract that from the conversation and form this essay. Then we also have something in the book which we call character stories and photo stories. Now, these are pieces which are observation-based. Because two things are happening as people documenting. One is conversations and the other is observations. And the third is our voices, which is the poetry in the diary note. So, conversations are what people literally speak. We transcribe, translate, edit and they are in. Observations take the form of character and photo stories because... Uh, the way we validate these is that the image is the proof. Mm-hmm. So you may see something happening. For example, when there are processions that come of the various saints who come in procession to dip, they come for snaan, Uh We find that a lot of devotees, after they pass, are collecting sand because the sand is, you know, stepped on by the holy men. Mm-hmm. So it's considered auspicious or it's considered sacred. So now that is something that we see. Nobody talks about it. But so we've got sequences documented like that of small aspects, but the visual is the evidence. So all the books have photo stories, all the books have character stories, all the books have essays, all the books have diary notes and poetry. And one part which we use as as page breakers is what we call insights. They are just powerful quotes or one-liners extracted from various, all the 80 conversations that are pieced in to break these larger chapters. Mm And the last category is interviews. So uh, everything in its core is an interview, but we retain some as Q&A. So for example, we speak to say the health and sanitation officer. So in volume Eight, when we are talking about the services and the organization of the Mela, we retain his as an interview by itself because when we talk to him, we're only talking about that. So it makes sense for it to go as is. So when you navigate, when you walk into a book, you will find you're navigating through eight styles of writing. Mm. And if you're, say, a reader who doesn't care about reading, you're more of a flipper or, you know, someone who wants to browse, you can may as well miss the essay and just read the character and photo stories because it's more visual mm. or just read poetry and just soak that mm. in. Mm. So that's how the books are. There's a two-layered uh, design Uh, inception going on one is aspects which are the eight volumes and the others is styles of writing which are eight styles of writing Mm -hmm. and each book has all the eight Mm -hmm. so we've conceived an information architecture for the book where we use color for the aspects so when you look at the eight volumes visually and it's ironic that i'm talking about visual i'm talking and Mm -hmm. not showing but anyway uh, that's also a challenge so eight colors so for example book three is blue Mm. Because it's about the rivers. rivers yeah. So there is a little bit of a connection that we've made for colors. And that color runs across the pages of the book. And for the various styles of writing, we use symbols. And we use different flag symbols, like a triangular flag or horizontal flag. So they are just uh, graphic elements that we use. And the combination of a flag and a color works as a footer in the book. Mm. So when you look at the footer, From the color, you know which book you are talking about. And from the flag ka shape, you can tell whether this is a character story or an interview or a photo story. Mm -hmm. So it is a two-way information architecture that is conceived best seen rather than heard. But yeah, uh, that's something again that is emergent. And we had somebody who collaborated with us and worked dedicatedly on it. So that the graphic designer in us wanted to kind of explore this aspect, considering we had the privilege to do something so voluminous and we needed this architecture because otherwise it's
1: yeah, it's very, it's difficult very different time. it's a yeah. big
2: sea of information, so it helped us. And it's not something like, okay, we sat down and brainstormed for two days and we were like, okay, eight books and eight styles of writing. It happened over six months. Mm. So suddenly somebody who's working on the content is just like, oh, this piece of information doesn't fit in an essay. It doesn't fit in an interview. It Neither does it fit as a quote. We need something else for it. Mm. So then we realized, okay, okay, let's try to think about, ...a character story... ...because these are characters who are unconventional... ...they're not saints... ...they're not the expected people... ...they're just characters... ...maybe I'll give an example... ...it'll just make it more fun... ...there was one Baba in the Kumbh... ...who came in a candy stripe scooter... ...his scooter had like... ...12 colours of... ...literally like stripes of different pastel colours... ...and every time we spotted him at the Kumbh... ...he was wearing different clothes... ...and rather funny... ...and sometimes he had wigs... ...sometimes he had masks... And we saw so many people touching his feet and we we were just very curious what was going on. So we went and spoke to him and he was like, my way of worship is to make people smile. So I do everything to myself. So that people see me and smile. That's just wow. the way I serve. Mm-hmm. So he's not someone you expect as, you know, in orange robes or as sitting in a security office. Or So we have these... Every book has one character like this that we've spotted in the landscape. Mm. So there was another guy who we fondly call Chandan Baba because he was 85 and he goes wherever his guru goes. He was a freedom fighter. And with his pension, what he does now, he makes Chandan. Like he he needs Chandan and then he applies Chandan on people's forehead. So that's all he does in the whole kum. So Hmm. he must have applied Chandan to like five lakh people's foreheads. (laughs) So we have these kind of people who are very peculiar, but are also playing a certain role in the landscape. And each book has one character like this. Hmm. So character stories are all about this. Photo stories are all about Uh, you know, things you can see, and by just seeing the visual, you can tell a story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this whole thing is very emergent. You you take in the sea of information when you come back, and what helped us the most was the systems of archiving, which is no rocket science, but we just had to be diligent. So, what happened is, on field, on all the 60 days that we were there, at the end of the day, we would sit down, however late it was, and write, we would very clearly write the name of the person we interviewed, the place of interview you know who was present from the team during the interview whether it's sound recorded video recorded what is the form of minutes of meeting minutes (laughs) of a meeting but we had to do that every day because by the end of the second day you've forgotten everything of the first day because you meet like 30 people every day like you don't know who you're going to meet
1: you meet but you see at least like a million people you see
2: a million but you converse with that many and the one piece of information that is still lies in our studio wall after six years is this diary log. So we still know on twenty first Jan in twenty thirteen what did we do and where we were going because when we print the books, that has to go into the bibliography. Mm-hmm. So that was a essential part of uh, you know the systems. Like we we couldn't miss any information. We couldn't miss who we spoke to, when we spoke to, why we spoke to. Mm-hmm. So it it just needed diligence in sort of having all of it in place. Got
1: yeah. I'm really falling short of words because I can see this just information architecture of like this book can be completely like a separate audio transition. So yeah, in hindsight, uh, what was the most powerful design lesson uh, from having documented this if you can tell that?
2: Uh, So I try to use two words when I describe the process of documentation and design. One is self-organization and the second is emergence. So I have to say that the kumbh by itself is very organized. And people are there with an intention. So although there is so much of a crowd, you know, there is an innate discipline in people because they all want to reach the river. So they know if they behave in a not disciplined manner, they won't reach the river. And imagine each person having this innate discipline. So, while there are larger systems of organization, I feel like it starts with an individual being disciplined and organized himself or herself. Mm-hmm. So, we found the comb landscape very chaotic, but there's a lot of order in the chaos also.
1: It's very tough to visualize because yeah. at least from my knowledge, whatever visuals I've seen, it it feels very chaotic, right?
2: See, there is chaos, but… Something as simple as this. So when we spoke to uh, the head of security and traffic control, he told us that one of the crowd management, not management, but one of the strategies that they deployed was that they would make sure all the ground staff, all the police was instructed that people should not stop because it means that if there is a stoppage at somewhere, it means a stampede elsewhere. So whatever happens, circulation and constant movement is a must. So sometimes you will find that I would ask a police or a traffic uh, police on ground and be like, okay, which side is the river? I want to go to Sangam. If Sangam is on the left, but that that road is crowded, he'll tell me go right. He'll give me the wrong direction, but he'll make sure that there is movement. And ultimately, you'll reach there because there'll be another road. Mm -hmm. But from there end, stoppage means stampede. So the strategy is that constant flow, movement has to be there so there are a lot of these small very simple things but they are followed and people follow them because ultimately they all want to do what they want to do in the Kum, especially the ones who come with faith they want to reach the river and dip Mm. so as a viewer as an outsider yeah sure you may feel like this is the crowd it is very crowded it's the largest gathering on earth but then the crowd comes for a reason the crowd goes people are doing what they are doing there and are achieving their objective of being there. So Mm -hmm. that in itself is testimony that it is organized. Mm -hmm. So anyway, going back to the word self-organized, for me, the process of anchoring this project has been, you know, it's more like witnessing that things are happening. People fall in place, who we speak to, it's just somebody, nothing is planned. You go there, you speak to someone, he'll tell you, oh, have you spoken to this guy? Then that guy will be like, oh, you still haven't spoken to this guy? So that's how we got our 80 conversations. Nothing was planned. Mm. Only two or three official ones with the government. We had our patrons step in because we needed special permissions. Mm. But everything else was very, very emergent. And it was almost like the book is organizing itself. There was nothing, and how would, you cannot justify it that we make a book because we know nothing about this like, till mm. we go there. Mm. So everything is something that has happened. And uh, for me, it's been a journey of just being open to what is happening and allowing it to happen because it's happening by itself mm. through all the resources that came in, all the people that came in, all the conversations. So which is why you use the word emergent. Mm. And I feel that uh, this emergent self-organization, coalition, um, facilitation are words which are very synonymous Mm. because for me the root of that is the design lesson is that uh, in a place like the kum everything is designed and as designers we can only learn we cannot deploy or we cannot enforce so i think the biggest learning is to be open that's all Mm -hmm. i'll tell you a simple example of design there so uh, we had vantage points because we were filming we had some media passes And we could go up to watchtowers where the police are. And we realized that uh, when you look at the whole landscape from top, everything is like snakes. People, they don't walk one next to each other. They walk one behind the other. Because what happens is if I'm walking next to you, and if someone cuts through, I'll lose you. But if I'm walking behind you, I can always tug onto you and walk. Mm
1: -hmm. So
2: it is design. But it's design that nobody has told anybody to do. It's just design that happens. Because and it,
1: has, it must have evolved with the number of people coming in every year.
2: Of course. And yeah. it's just something that you as a designer, like, oh, this is an amazing design system that you see snakes of people and you don't see anyone walking one next to the other. And it kind of amplifies itself in a rather exotic way with women from villages. They're holding each other's sari pallus and walking one way and the other.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: a beautiful spectacle as a photographer, mm. but it's very functional.
1: So like a family will be in a linear... Yeah, uh,
2: they'll be in a line. They'll never be one next to the other. Mm -hmm. From top, it's literally like snakes of people. It's a sea of crowd, but within the crowd, it's all these lines, lines, lines walking. Mm -hmm. Then another simple thing that people do is they'll have a long stick. And this is no rocket science, but they'll just have a very long stick with some random object, like some vegetable, some piece of colored cloth, anything hung on it. And first we were like... Is this religious? Is this ritualistic? We didn't know what was going on. And then we realized that it's just groups of people from villages. And what they're doing is that if you get separated from your group, you just spot that object from afar and go back. So very small things, very basic things. But the kumbh is full of these. And you can only be like, oh, wow, there's already so much design.
1: Correct, correct. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm like really tempted to go there now. Um.
2: You should. That's our client's intent. He said after, he he said you've succeeded in your brief if by reading the books or watching the film, Hmm. somebody actually makes an effort to go to the Kumbh. Because the whole purpose of this exercise is to invite people to attend. Hmm. Problem is they don't. And what the kum does to you is anyways will be very different for each individual. So our role is not to enforce anything that happens or to inform, but more to get people to experience, come and get themselves Mm -hmm. to be in the landscape. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Deshna, you also mentioned that you published these books. So what does it take to publish? uh, I mean, how was the aspect for you considering it was like the first self-published book, right? So like... What was the process like and uh, what were I'm assuming now that you have spoken, there will be a lot of, lot of papers in the studio and uh, there has to be some attention to the paper. Like lot of different domains, right? Except uh, apart from just documenting what you went and actually did.
2: So in publishing, uh, I mean, it was our first experience and I have to say that we knew nothing. So it was learning with the experience mm-hmm. and we made a lot of mistakes and... It starts with the whole documentation process itself, where I said diary logging every day to make sure that we have, like we can't put in a sentence in the book and not attribute it to who it was, Hmm. because somebody may wake up and be like, I never said this or Hmm. be like, I didn't mean this Hmm. or be like, Oh, this one, this is said by somebody else. It's not by me. So we have to be so careful with, you know, the right attribution as publishers because that is our responsibility and somebody can hold us accountable and anything even one wrong sentence people can ask us to pull down the whole set of books so we knew this from from the time when we went that we have to be very careful in getting all the data behind the voices I mean where people are from how do we reach them when we have to get the necessary permissions so the most challenging bit I would say is I think it took us about a, between a year and a half or one year, eight months to collate all of this. And this is a project that ran in in the studio as our first, but always with others. Because while it was a great project to work on, it was not something that could sustain us. Because the commission was one book. Our client would be very happy if he made one book. But we were the ones who got overexcited and made eight. And he also supported the excitement in the sense for production. But as professionals, we were paid to do one book so but it, that's a different story because uh, it became a passion project for most of us involved and then we stopped thinking about a lot of other things and we just gave it our all but after we made the we ready the first draft so the eight books covers dummy that you print after you you know write the whole book design it put all the photos in place we printed a dummy and then we were looking through all of them and we realized that um, One person may feature in more than two or three books. Because by the system of tagging, if I spoke to you and you spoke about rivers, you will be in book three. But if you spoke about management, you will also be in book eight. Mm. The part which you spoke about rivers is in book three. The part which you spoke about management is in book eight. So every individual more or less was in two, three, four, depending on the aspects they spoke about. Now, before we printed the books or did our offset run, we needed paperwork in the sense we needed no objection certificates from every individual who we included in the book. So that... um, In
1: that context. In that context.
2: So what we had to do is we had to make PDFs or we had to take printouts of wherever, for example, Kedar appears in our volumes, whatever aspect he spoke about. So I would have to gather you from book 3, book 8, book 7, wherever I've put you, I would have to compile a PDF and mail you and say, look, you appear in these three books and before you say, say what you say, this is a person who says this, this is the heading of the chapter or this is the heading. You have to be okay with it and you have to sign my no-objection certificate and be like, okay, I've read it, this is fine. It's good to go. Mm. Because there was also translation, right? So you may speak in Hindi, it means something completely different from what I've interpreted in English. So this was a very important step which took us six months. So, book could go into production only after six months of completing full design, writing, everything. Because we were getting no But did you get
1: any, like, rejections? Because...
2: No, no rejections. Just
1: people are out of the world, right? They they don't really... So,
2: I'll get to that. Now, the challenge was, how do I get to a Naga Sadhu? A Naga Sadhu is back in the mountains. Or he he doesn't have an email ID, neither does he have an address. So, our challenges for getting this were many. We had to always go to the organization. So most Naga sadhus are associated with Akhadas. And each Akhada has a, you know, media body or has an admin office. So we had to find, first challenge was to find all these people again.
1: but just to thinking aloud here, yeah. why would a Naga sadhu anyways do sue you guys or make
2: No, like he wouldn't. He, he wouldn't sue us. But it's it's inappropriate or very selective on our part to be like, hmm. okay, we, we forget the Naga sadhus, we'll get Mark Tully's permission for hmm. what he said. It's inappropriate or incomplete as a process, right? Hmm. And there's always a risk. You never know. Some, some sadhu turns into a normal human being at some point and is like, I didn't mean this. Hmm. It's you can't take the risk, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was uh, what happened when we gave them these. Some we physically posted. We had to, <clears throat> our client sent one person to Allahabad who went to find these people. Because a lot of them don't have uh, email. Sorry. Okay, so one interesting story with this simple things always kept happening. Say there was a sadhu from this Chinmaya mission whose name we ha- needed an extra A. Now, Something as simple as this came back when we sent them an no objection and said, this is how you appear. So he said, no, my name has a, it's an Ananda. So you can't write Anand. We need, it has to be an Ananda. My guru's given me the name. You can't spell it wrong. So then wherever we he appeared, you have to go and change A, A, A everywhere. That is simple. Then we had somebody, I cannot name the person, but somebody who we had interviewed, who was a foreigner and she followed a certain faith in the kum, but her family did not know. And she, in that particular faith, they wear a certain tikka, a certain kind of a tikka. So when we filmed her, when we photographed her, she had the tikka in the cup. So when we sent her the whole draft, she's like, you need to get this tikka out before you publish me. Because my family is going to be very unhappy if they see me with this tikka. Wow. So we had to photoshop the tikka out and put her in the book with that. Mm-hmm. Then there was one instance which was some lady we had interviewed who was a sadhvi ji from MP. And she had given us a phone number and an address. We couldn't contact that number. It wasn't, it didn't exist. We sent a courier to the address it bounced back. There was no way we could trace her. And we were like, okay, now we've got all these 79 for this one woman. It's really like, but we wanted it because mm, then mm. it's not foolproof. And it's scary that one woman can wake up and be like, no, mm. one day, and then we're back to square one. So... One of my studio colleagues, Teertha, what she did was, she zoomed into all the pictures we had of her. And you know, when they speak at Dukum, generally there's a pandal. And they have like a banner with their name, etc. Like at functions, how you have a backdrop. So where you have the name of the organization, the name of the speaker. (laughs) Hmm. So she zoomed in and saw, she found the number of the guy who printed that flex Hmm. in MP, who flex-holding. We called up the Flexwala and we were like, do you have any idea where this woman is or her organization is? And he was like, yeah, they've changed the address. He gave us the right address and number. And that's how we could uh, trace them to get our no objections. Wow. So
1: every so, small thing is a win, yeah, big win. Yeah. So we
2: have these crazy stories of the making hmm. and especially publishing. Hmm. While it was quite frustrating, I have to admit, in those six months, because we're just like, we don't know when this will happen, when hmm. it'll finish. But... It has to be the way it is, so it happened. Yeah.
1: Wow. Uh, Dishna, I would like to conclude with the last two questions, uh, which are more towards learning and what were your learnings. Uh, so, what were the like to begin with? What were the failures and what could have been done better? What do you think could have been uh, a better approach? Obviously, it's very very broad a question mm-hmm. because the kind of effort you guys have put into making this itself is a every every moment is a learning but
2: uh... no i think failures were many um because one is the format of the books now the intention of the client was to reach people hmm. the size was something that we as a team thought would be good to have large because the landscape is crazy and to see it in something really tiny doesn't do justice so which is why our size now he wanted the books to be hardbound. The books are, it is not one book it's eight books, a three are set weighs sixteen kilos. It's the most inaccessible body of work when you it's not portable in that sense, so we realized the book as a format worked, but we could have done something a lot smaller, a lot compressed, I would say not compressed in the sense elimination, but more of an edit mm. in that way, it would have been cheaper to produce in that way we could make it available at a much cheaper rate. Mm. So, right now, the book set is uh, 16 kilos, like I said. Amazon doesn't even accept it as a set in the book category. They say put it in white goods because mm. it's too big a set mm. as one parcel. Mm. So and, we you face, said,
1: and, and you intend to have it sold uh, as a set of eight and not individual books. So I, That's what I read on the website. Yeah,
2: ideally eight, but there are times when we make available single books. We do sometimes on some certain days or events, we... Do allow that, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's conceived as a set, so we sell it as a set. But having said that, uh, libraries or larger institutes are are focused in the sense that they are the ones who buy it because although the content is not very uh, encyclopedia, the format in production has become that. Mm-hmm. So I would say that is a failure as a format because if the same information is available as something that you could you know pick up in the morning when you take a train, it's so nice. Mm. But right now, you can't lift these books. So we're hoping to do e-books at some point soon because the intent of the client is to make available this information, but Mm. the format has not supported it. And Mm. that is uh, something we've gone wrong on. The other failure, I would say, is really the lack of understanding of what the kumbh is before we went. While there were positives of that because we went as a blank canvas, but had we known a little more in depth, we could have reached out to more specific people and got more specific, relevant information, which in fact we could do when we did Nasik, because then we had the experience of having already documented Wankum and knowing how things work. Mm. So Nasik documentation turned into 155 conversations. It's much larger than Allahabad. It. Mm. But uh, it's only four volumes. They are soft bound. They are A4 in size. So we've learned from our first mistakes and Mm. now what will come out is a lot more portable. It will be cheaper. And it's also more factual because Allahabad was more like even when you go through the books, it's like you feel like you are in the mila and you don't know what to expect next. Whereas Nasik is very structured because we knew that, okay, in an Akhada, when we speak, there is an Acharya, there's a Ma there's a Manleshwar, there's a Kotwal, there's a Adhikari. We knew exactly the workings of everything by then. Hmm. So when we go to interview, we are like, okay, we want this post even for the security, we have 13 ranks of police in the interviews, Mm -hmm. which in Mm -hmm. Allahabad was one. Mm -hmm. It's just like what you find, what you can, because you don't even know that all these other things exist. Mm -hmm. So we have learned from the first and employed, deployed, all of that in the second. But again, I'm always scared because one of the questions that I'm faced with, not scared, but it's just a question that people always ask about is authenticity. Because uh, they always feel that you know you are working with a rich uh, amount of content which has a whole scholarly fraternity associated Perfect. a whole historian fraternity a whole Spiritual. guru lineage yeah. uh, associated and what what happens in our books is on the same page you may have two completely contrasting viewpoints and we put them because we are no one we, we don't go and validate it with you know a veda or a purana or a dictionary. This is what we are told and this is what we are telling. Mm. So that is always a question mark there. Why do you want to put out documentation which is not foolproof? Mm. That I'm, I, we get asked this okay. question. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there is a downside to it. But at the same time, oral history supports us in the sense that that is a different approach. Mm. That it is about everything that anyone thinks or has a certain faith about is valid from their perspective. And nobody else can validate that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, There are these things which are also have been approached by some museums in the UK who wanted the sets. But now when they ask us, how is the book documented? What are your sources? I say we don't have any secondary research. It's only primary. And then they're like, oh, but then it doesn't sort of necessarily fit in the museum space because the museum library needs a certain amount of Mm. credibility in content and checking. So these are things we are faced with. But there is a, I mean, the positive is that there is a whole community, like, there is a whole openness to even this information, especially with self-publishing growing now and people having access to information and generally having open minds and Mm -hmm. worldviews. What we would do differently if we were to document again is that I think we would be a lot more careful of what we ask. Because earlier it was almost like, oh, I have to meet someone in five minutes, you would just google and be like okay this is this person this is the rank what will we ask and you go ask because you don't even have time to pre-prepare but uh, now that we know who we want to meet uh, i think we go a lot more prepared with a certain background and understanding and ask relevant questions to relevant people Mm. i think that will give us more focused answers because right now we would just ask a more generic questions to everyone we met which Mm. is why from the same person we get or something for all the hate books, Correct. which need not be the case. We can, you know, be more focused mm-hmm. and that way the information is more valid. So yeah, there are a lot of uh, these yeah. things and also pushing a camera into someone's face is always a bad idea because mm-hmm. what you get on camera is never what you get off camera. And it's, I think the most important or the most precious information uh, we've got is when the camera is shut. Correct.
0: Correct.
2: And thankfully we always have sound on. So we get that on sound for the books but Mm. we don't get it in the film Mm -hmm. so somewhere it's even for me as i speak with a mic in front of me it's intimidating Mm. and how i speak and it affects so i don't know how to navigate that challenge but Mm. i hope we can do some more hiding of equipment so that people feel more comfortable and casual Mm
1: -hmm. yeah brilliant in fact this uh like While you were saying this, uh, even I had one insight where I would like to do uh, a more in-depth conversation just about this entire thing which we spoke with someone from a spiritual side of things, someone from a more philosophical standpoint and, and then have like a more, I wouldn't say debate, but like a different kind of discussion which will bring in different insights because this is mainly to document your process of designing and what went into the design part but especially like kum it has a different spectrum of things altogether so yeah i would like to conclude with uh, one last question what like what was your personal experience uh, of anchoring this entire documentation project i mean like what what are your takeaways as a designer and also again if you can give some takeaways as a human being as well because this is an experience in itself
2: yeah so the kum has been transformational not only to me but all of us involved in the team and uh, I can say that very confidently because everyone shares the same view and I think it just it just exposes us to a gamut which is very hard to even think about sitting in our cocooned offices and sitting in the cities it exposes us to a real India which we hear about in figures like you know 80% whatever villages rural it's to be in the space with these people who, you know, come with an exceptional faith, is very empowering. Uh, it it makes you rethink everything, like the decisions you make, why you do what you do. It's just so steeped in faith, the landscape that it's unbelievable. It's like faith. You know, you read in books like faith can move mountains. You see mountains being moved when you are at the Kum. Like everything in just how people think to how things happen there. So personally, I'm someone who comes from a space with a belief and with an aspirational to be spiritual. So for me, the whole experience of documenting the kum just reaffirmed my faith in faith mm-hmm. is what I can oh. say. Mm-hmm. And it's like if faith does this to people, there should be faith everywhere because it can it can work miracles. And yeah, I would I as will take designer, the... take a designer, yeah, as a yeah. designer... So I will also take the liberty of, uh, you know, describing one visual scene when we walked in for the first time. So this was us landing in Varanasi on um, 5th of January. The kumbh was to begin in about four days after that, 5th of January, 2012. And you drive from we, we drove from Varanasi to Allahabad and we were driving into the city of Allahabad and we came to this bridge, which is called the Shastri Bridge. And we're just going over the bridge and we know below is whatever there is. It's the water probably. We didn't know. I mean, it was our first time to Allahabad. And you just go onto this bridge and you look up and the whole sky, there's like a golden patch in the sky. As far as our eyes can see, left and right.
0: Okay. And
2: we're wondering what is like suddenly, how can there be such a horizontal golden patch? So uh, our driver says, upar nahi dekho, niche dekho. And we go over Shastri Bridge and Nietzsche is the whole Kumbh city with its yellow lights. So that is how we first see the Kumbh. Because the Kumbh is on the floodplains of the Ganga. So everything that is made in Allahabad is made on floodplains which will, after three months, there will be rain and washed off. So everything of the Kumbh for 120 million people is temporary.
1: 120 million? Yeah,
2: that's what figures say. Like there is controversy, but between 80 and 120 is what media and figures say so that was the first experience and i don't think any of us can forget that golden light that we saw we keep like it just keeps coming back to us and as a designer i think i've learned from there that i i respect people a lot more i respect views of people a lot more it's taught me to be open less judgmental although i'm still very judgmental but i think it's lessened how judgmental i was and it's definitely taught me one thing that As a graphic designer, I am a facilitator. I am not an author. I am not a creator. Mm. And my mentor in London, um, Michael Wolff, would keep telling me that... I mean, his sort of lesson to me when I left and the time I had spent with him was that uh, as a designer, you you sort of, uh, you know, have to put yourself in other people's shoes. It's very important. Mm. Then only you can get a perspective or a perception that does justice to understand them and then to design for them. But he always said that we do that. We put ourselves in other people's shoes, but we always forget to remove our own. So Mm -hmm. that lesson has stayed with me from him. But at the Kumbh, that's something that I was very consciously trying to, um, you know, put into practice. So, And I still aspire to put it into practice continuously, but it's not perfect. That is very important when you document Mm -hmm. that you have to forget what you think and what you believe. Mm. Only then can you even listen because otherwise you're not even listening. So, yeah, I think the takeaways are that the KUM landscape has so much to teach you that you can only learn. You can never enforce anything there. Mm. So you, you can't be this director directing some photography there. You can't be this designer being like, do this this way all that you can do is go and re- go and absorb and be like oh this is how it should be done like you learn from it that's all the kum was for me
1: yeah wow wow yeah it, it breaks down all the ego barriers which uh, a person has i think this is very mildly to put it yeah. but yeah <laughs>
2: that's an aspiration mm. but
1: yeah <laughs> wow Lot of lot of learnings, lot of inspirational thoughts, lot of food for thought uh, overall uh, in this conversation. And uh, I think, yeah, it, it, we can just keep talking about this endlessly, which is the given time we have. Uh, thank you, Deshna, for giving your time. And it was really, really wonderful talking to you, knowing more about it. On the last note, in fact, uh, if people have to buy this, the kumamelaexperience.com. Yeah, right? it's the
2: kumamelaexperience.com where mm. one can buy books from there and also we have uh we're active on social media mm. instagram and facebook and again it's the Kumela experience mm. uh and what we do is uh, to make the information more accessible and leading up to the upcoming kum every day we put out a piece of the book on social media yeah which so, i've been following yeah, yeah <laughs> so even if you don't buy the book and if you follow us on social media you will get all the eventually you will get the whole book
1: <laughs> oh, nice. yeah. and people have to if they have to follow your work and uh, so, contribute to the next project which you which you are planning to do is
2: so uh, i don't really know what is the next project i'm planning to do but we have a studio website it's called studioanugra.com which is where we put out all our work and Hmm. we mostly work with a lot of books and documentation.
1: Cool, all the best and once again, thank you. Thank you.
2: And that's it from today's Gyan session. Catch us on iTunes, Savan, Stitcher or any podcasting app you use. Do rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for more Gyan on audiogyan.com Till then, bye!